stand out here. Uh, for those who are listening on the audio podcast, it may be a little trickier because this is going to be a very visual presentation. Um, in fact, so visual, I'm not going to use notes. I'm just going to use the PowerPoint. So apologies to those who are working only on audio, uh, but I won't attempt to audio describe every picture that I'm going to show. I'm going to do something a little bit different this evening. We're going to think about a Bible character. We're going to see how Jesus engaged with that Bible character. We're then going to compare how our partners in Malawi engage with people in many ways who may have many similarities to that Bible character. We're going to then look at how, finally, ask a question, how we may well benefit from learning from Malawi and taking that into how we engage with people in our community around us. Let's see if this will... Yes. So, I wonder, what do you know about Mary Magdalene? Or what do you think you know about Mary Magdalene? <laughs> and I'm going to show quickly a few art pictures. Well, first of all, this is a painting from, or a photograph, actually, from 100 years ago of a place called Magdala on the Sea of Galilee. We don't actually even know whether Mary Magdalene came from Magdala. It's possible also that the word Magdalene means a tower, a strong tower. She was actually a strong person. Just like Peter was the rock, Mary was the tower. We don't know. A lot of what we think we know about this lady has come from hearsay, maybe from uh, Dan Brown's novels or from Jesus Christ Superstar. In the art world, she's often portrayed as a very pensive, thoughtful kind of lady, like in this picture. She's sometimes even portrayed as having a very intimate, almost inappropriate relationship with Jesus. But again, from Scripture, there's very little to indicate that at all. This is a painting from a few hundred years ago of Jesus being carried from the cross, and she's the one who has her hand intimately on his. But is this really what Mary was like? There's actually only about 12 references in Scripture to her. A lot of the rest has been invented. She's often portrayed as a penitent sinner in art. That's her there. Some even suggested she was a prostitute. But that idea came by conflating together two or three Bible characters uh, from, that was done about 600 AD by one of the bishops. There's no evidence in Scripture about that. So what does the Bible really say about Mary Magdalene and what do we know about the way Jesus came to her? I'm just getting this to click, which it doesn't seem to want to do, which is... This is uh, a painting of Mary Magdalene at the time that she was delivered from the seven demons. That is in Scripture. No, there we go. Luke 8. After this, Jesus traveled about from one town and village to another, proclaiming the good news of the kingdom of God. The twelve were with him, and also some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. And we can often forget that, that Jesus' traveling party was a very mixed party. The ladies had key roles in it, 
And this included Mary, called Magdalene, called Tower maybe, or from Magdala, from whom seven demons had come out. What do we mean by that? Well, it could be that six times people had tried to cast demons out of her. Mental illness, possession, whatever it is, and had failed, and Jesus managed on the seventh time. That's, possible. That's one possible meaning of it. Or it may just mean it was very difficult for humans to cure her of her situation of the evil spirits and diseases, but Jesus did it, and seven is that perfect number. I think you don't have to click manually from each time you see this. It seems to not want to work. This is a picture of Mary Magdalene, dressed in a rich red robe at the foot of the cross. Of all the ladies there, Mary Magdalene, Mary of Bethany, Mary, her mother. Mary was the most common name of a lady in those days. Hence, she may be Mary from Magdala, the Mary from Bethany. Mary, her mother, was from Nazareth, distinguishing one Mary from another. We don't know, but she was clearly very near to them. Some women were watching from a distance, among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James the younger, Joseph and Salome. Whatever influence Jesus had had in her life, it had transformed it. She became part of his entourage as he traveled around. And then when he suffered death, many of the disciples ran away, but she with the other women were there at the cross. Near the cross stood his mother, his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, another Mary, and Mary Magdalene. And again, move on, please. And this is another painting showing the day of resurrection at the tomb, the two angels. Notice Mary Magdalene. She's the one dressed in that rich red robe. She was far from an unstable, poor lady, as we often think she might have been. John 20, now Mary Magdalene stood outside the tomb crying. She was really devoted to this man, Jesus, who had delivered her from whatever was this trouble that she had in her life. As she wept, she looked into the tomb and saw the two angels seated where Jesus' body had been. And then the risen Jesus, she met with him, famous, don't touch me, don't get too connected, I'm going back to my Father and your Father, my God and your God. When Jesus rose early on the first day of the week, he first appeared to Mary Magdalene. Jesus chose to show himself first when he rose to a lady, to a lady who'd had a past of being possessed by demons, a mental illness, whatever it was. It's not what you would first of all think he would do. That's the kind of saviour Jesus is. But what had Jesus then saved Mary Magdalene for? Jesus said, I am the gate. Whoever enters through me will be saved. I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. And that applies to folk like Mary Magdalene. He doesn't just want a little bit of light relief in their lives. He's come that they may have life and have it to the full. He's come that you may have life and have it to the full. Whatever your starting point is, like Mary Magdalene, 
I am the way, the truth, and the life. And Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Not I provide the bread of life, but he actually is the bread of life. So whatever it was that she had seen in him, she then didn't just want to acknowledge he'd made a little change in her life and then get on with her life. No, her life was transformed from the bottom upwards because this Jesus had met her just where she was and had lifted her up to walk on mountains. Luke 8 again, as we read earlier, Jesus traveled from one town to another, 12 were with him, and some women who'd been cured of evil spirits and diseases. So this wasn't just Mary Magdalene. It's actually a number of other ladies who'd had issues, and Jesus had been the one who'd managed to save them. And look, Joanna, the wife of Chusa, the manager of Herod's household, these ladies who were in Jesus' party, some of them were, were on the edge of you know, the royal family, as it were. They're not ladies of poor education, of no means, but they are ladies who've needed a deliverance, who've needed a saviour, as we all do. It says, and these women, some of them were actually funding Jesus' mission. Jesus was on mission support, and the mission support was provided by ladies. And we can gloss over that rather readily. Again, Mark, in Galilee, these women had followed him. They cared for his needs. They were an integral part of his mission team as he traveled around. Many other women who'd come up with him to Jerusalem were also there. And we can gloss over the importance of ladies in an overall integrated mission team of men and women with all our different skills. So that's a little bit on Mary, just to set us going, if we can get going. So what does this take us to with Malawi? Well, that's the way Jesus engaged with people. He met them where they were, whatever their needs were, even the most hopeless of cases, the ones that nobody else seemed to be able to do anything about. And yet he met them just at their point of need. And he lifted them up and he gave them a purpose based upon their different skills and giftings and he used them in his team. And that's what I want us to bring in here. So Malawi is in southeastern Africa, landlocked country, one of the poorest 10 countries in the world, but not war-torn, but simply very poor, very short of resources. And so now what we do is, since we started the Crusoe Trust, myself and my wife, who apologizes, she's not with us tonight, she would have been, but she's had to go down south to care for her mother, uh, who's 91 and, uh, and struggling a bit. So she's away for a couple of weeks. Um, we are now working with this team. At the back right is Connex, who I mentioned in the introduction I had met in 2011 and come together with. But now we've built up a Malawian team who are doing the work. So I don't go to Malawi and need to do the mission. When we started off, it was two of us working together, but we've built up a local team who are doing it. And that's something important to recognize, particularly in a post-colonial era. 
Malawi is very beautiful, but has many challenges, and I'll just give you four quickly. A challenge, but also, um, also a blessing. A very young population, half the population are under 18, three quarters of the population are under 30. That's a church I preached in once. You can see the row of adults at the back, all the rest of it are children. And yet very often that church had no Sunday school work, no children's work, the children just sat there and didn't really know what was going on because the leaders were totally untrained. In fact, in that church, one of the young people we trained to run children's Bible clubs and his church made him a bishop instantly because he was better trained than their leaders were. So, you know, that's, that's the situation we might be in. They appointed him as the pastor. Um, poverty and illiteracy and child-headed families, that's a household where only children live. Of the 18 million in Malawi, one million are orphan children through HIV and um, marriage breakdowns and abandonment and so on. So there's a great need. Another need is, is traditional cultural practices. Animism is the term that's often used. And increasingly, Islam. That's another new mosque built. They're building mosques all over the place and putting them in, in areas where Muslims traditionally have not even lived. And yet, Islam is growing and the families are polygamous and, the, and, and often marry into Christian women to, to, to expand the influence of Islam. It's going on. And finally, over 90%, this is what Connex told me back in 2011, over 90% of the church leaders are completely untrained for their ministries. And they're like lambs to the slaughter in the face of Islam, traditional activities uh, where there's funding. Um, so what I'm going to do is just say a little bit about the... the We've looked at how Jesus engaged with Mary Magdalene. Jesus engaged holistically. He didn't just tell her to, you know, trust in him and everything will be fine in heaven. He also engaged with her needs, her felt needs, in this life as well. And what I've noticed very powerfully in Malawi is how this team work holistically. And these are what we call the, not the five pillars of Islam. This is the five pillars of holistic Christian ministry. And I've noticed how they are tying all five of these beautifully together to make a very effective evangelism, discipleship, compassion, social justice, and now increasingly that need to teach about creation care as well. So I'm just going to give a few pictures to illustrate how what that looks like. Um, so I'll take you off on three planes for a 24-hour set of flights to get you to Malawi. I came back last week from Malawi, uh, my third visit there this year, and uh, yeah, it's, you're a bit tired when you get there. But when you get there, you'll find this is our team, our partners in Malawi, how they are engaging. And evangelism and discipleship out in the rural community, and you put on a rally, people will come and people will listen and people will come to Christ. Um, this is a group of, of ladies with HIV, an HIV support group that we'd set up and telling them, teaching them um, the gospel. And that's many of them asking to receive Christ and receiving copies of John's gospel in their own language. 
and you can see where they're living. It's a very challenging place. This was me um, just um, a couple of weeks ago. Um, there was a group, and I got an opportunity to give a message of hope. These are all people who suffered in Cyclone Freddy in, in March. Most of these had lost homes uh, or lost uh, possessions or lost their crops, which is, can be a death sentence. And uh, they were coming for some, some aid support, but I had a chance to share a gospel message of hope with them. And this was back in March, immediately after the cyclone. People just, these are all people who've lost their homes, they're sleeping in this school classroom. And I was asked at 20 minutes notice, can you give them a Bible message of hope? Which I did, and that was when they were listening. And then people asking to receive Christ. There's an openness here and an opportunity when you bring Christ to them and make Christ real to them, just like Christ was with Mary Magdalene. This is a picture I received last night in the, in the center slightly to the left in red. That's my son, Timothy, who actually went out to Malawi last Tuesday, uh, and he and his friend Ian are doing sports ministry out there. So again, they're using their gifts, their skills, their interests, and those are all the teachers in all the local primary schools responsible for games. They're giving them training in how to do coaching and, and run, run um, sports activities, and they're sharing the gospel with them. And people will listen. I was once talking at, at a half-time in a football match, and I was telling the story, and, and the referee was a bit concerned because it was going to get dark, and it gets dark quickly when you're near the, near the equator. But all the team were holding him off, saying, no, I want to hear the end of this Bible message from these young people. So it, it's, there's a real interest and thirst to be met. And then the compassion side, that's another child-headed family. And I know after the storm couple, three years ago, I went back six months later and that house didn't exist. I just saw a little outline on the ground. A flood had come through, taken it away. What do you do then with families like that? That older girl looking after um, three actual younger siblings. That's Praise, one of the members of our team. Trying to give them food, give them help, trying to keep them in education. Acts of compassion, making Christ real to them. And this was after, when I was there in March after this Cyclone Freddy. House after house after house, wet, destroyed, especially on the windward side. Just, uh, over a thousand people died just in Malawi in, in two days. Um, 600,000 were displaced. Two million suffered losses of crops and other things just in that one bit of that one country over a weekend when this cyclone came. I had, had this chance to go and see these, these houses, and those were the people that I shared that gospel message in the School of Hope with. Uh, and you see, that's just a family, a child-headed family, but they've got a house, but that's the living room. The wall is gone, the roof is gone. So, uh, move on, please. Yeah, so I had the honor of, of sharing in a bit of emergency flood relief with an appeal we put together over the weekend when I was there with people, sharing plastic wrappings, buckets, things they need to just get themselves back on their feet 
again. And it was amazing to do that. At a project, we put some clean water in. It's part of a wider project to raise funds to make the ministry that we have self-supporting. But at the same time, you provide water for your local community. They have a cholera epidemic at the moment. Not one person in that community has had cholera. We give thanks. Now, this is very much a lady who's a Mary Magdalene. This is a lady who's a widow, and widows may be accused of witchcraft. So this is praising the team, talking to her, advocating with the chief to get help and support for this lady when she's being cast aside by her community because of her personal situation. That's bringing Christ to her. That's what Jesus would have done if he'd been there in that community, setting up a, um, a community HIV support group for, these pe for people who otherwise would be looked down upon in their community. And often many of these are ladies who simply have had unfaithful husbands and making sure they get the practical things like, like their antiretroviral drugs, but also... And I had the opportunity to preach here saying, your identity is not in being HIV positive. The only identity that matters for you is if you are in Christ or you are not in Christ. That's the only identity for all of us that ultimately will matter. And we found that a lot of girls were being sexually abused aged 11, 12, 13 in these areas. And so we're working now with the chiefs and getting bylaws set in and getting community awareness to protect these young girls from exploitation in the community. And then the fifth pillar, creation care. That was after one of the storms. This whole community was just cut off. That used to be a small single-span bridge, and then the river just washed it away. All the sand is in the Indian Ocean or something now. And uh, this was... Um, a week or so ago when I was there, you can see the green on the hill in the middle. That's where one of the chiefs is beginning to take seriously the issue of looking after the forests to protect from floods, to protect the community. And we're able to teach about the biblical basis of creation care, how God has made us stewards and wants us to live and prosper in our land. So you have these five pillars and you can't draw it all, to, all, all overlapping, <laughs> but essentially all these aspects of mission are interdependent in making Christ real to people, particularly people who are struggling. And so what's the main mission that, that the Crusoe Trust is doing? Well, it goes back to those beginnings when I met with Connex in 2011, and he said, Jonathan, what we need to do is train our church leaders. So we've set up this program. The flagship program is called Learn to Serve. The secret's in the name. It's particularly developing servant models of leadership within the church leaders and giving them the biblical toolkit to be able to lead their churches. Without it, most of them are led by traditional animist culture, what they've grown up with, and they try and lead their churches in that way. Uh, this is praise, actually, teaching about the church engaging with community because most churches only think they're just a club for their own members uh, and they don't have the resources really for going out much beyond but to give them an idea that they are the salt and light into their wider communities is an important part of it so these are the basis of learn to serve 
teaching them basic biblical theology, the, basic, the basics of the Christian faith, servant models of leadership rather than bossship, how to approach basic interpretation of the Bible, that, that every genre of scripture you don't just approach as a, like a literal lookup book, which can be how people do so, even church leaders, if they have a Bible, which many don't. Radical discipleship, that it's not just about putting your hand up and saying, yes, I follow Christ, and then no change happens, no transformation. Discipleship is a lifelong journey. Conversion is, is a point. And then practical ministry driven by Bible, not by culture. And we've put together this four times one week of training for rural church leaders, and not just pastors, but elders and women. Uh, we try and have at least a third being ladies because the women have a massive influence within the church and within their families, pastors, wives, women's ministry leaders. We've expanded in the last couple of years now to a variant on it called Learn to Serve for Chiefs. These are the community leaders, the village chiefs. So you have church leaders and you have community leaders. And traditionally, the, the chiefs are the custodians of traditional culture. And then the church leaders, once they realize that they shouldn't also be custodians of traditional culture and practice, uh, actually are trying to bring biblical practices in and then they get a collision. So we've realized that one of the things we need to do is get a biblical understanding of leadership in to the community leaders, how, we, how much we need that in this country as well. But we have an open door to do that. To The chiefs are a bit like, you could say, the local councillors. They're the ones who, who lead their villages. Um, so we're getting that done. And then we've also got a variant, a bit like you have Youth Alpha with Alpha. We've got Youth Learn to Serve with Learn to Serve for training the next generation of church leaders, the committed youth. Um, and also, particularly with the demographic, getting the youth to reach the children so getting, and getting the pastors to mentor the youth. And very often that has not happened within the church in Malawi. The youth have just been ignored. The pastors don't think they have anything to do with youth ministry. Youth ministry is a very new concept out there and our team are working to develop contextual versions, Af very African-style youth ministry, and get many of the churches, particularly the African indigenous churches, to understand the importance of training their youth to be the next generation of leaders. Why are we doing this? I love this verse. So Christ himself gave apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, teachers, in other words, church leaders, did you realize your church leaders are a gift to you from Christ himself? Christ gave them, but he gave them for a purpose. The church leader's purpose is to equip people for works of service, to do things in the church, in the community, to reach the Mary Magdalene's of this world. So the body of Christ will be built up. That word built up is, is, is really the word for discipleship. Until we all reach unity in the faith, not splits, in the knowledge of the Son of God, become mature, spiritually mature. It's a big, big picture of discipleship, and this is why Christ has given church leaders, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. Wow. And that is why Christ has given 
church leaders to the church. And that is why we see the key thing to building God's kingdom in Africa and across the world is the training of godly church leaders, men and women, to be the ones who then reach others. And that's what I have on the board here. We're aiming to train thousands of leaders to reach the hundreds of thousands for Christ. It's multiplication. Because many of the churches will have 100, 200 in them. A few weeks ago, I was preaching in a church which had about five, 600 in there in the service. But if your church leaders have, don't know the basics, one pastor once said to me, I never understood that Jesus was the Son of God. Now you've told me that. I want to teach it to the church this week because this is important. But how can they go if they've never heard? And these are the leaders of the churches. So please journey with us is the first little plea. We use Zoom to have links uh, and monthly prayer times as well and live links with our team in Malawi, so you hear things direct. Um, and we produce a prayer guide, which is on the table downstairs. I've put six copies there. Feel free to help yourself to that or to sign up to get it by email, which my wife Ruth writes each month. Um, so we have ways to keep connection. I'm just the bridge between churches in the UK, supporters, and the team in Malawi, who are the ones who then work with the church in Malawi. I don't engage directly with the churches. We're there to support the team in Malawi as they do that. So, coming back to the full circle, what about you here? What can you learn from what's working really well in Malawi? Often you come with to mission presentations and people tell you about all the things that are wrong and how poor people are and what they need, this, that, and the other. Yes, there are those needs. But there's also tremendous richness, spiritual richness especially, but also a lot of resilience in the face of many, many hardships. And church leaders that really are trying to do ministry in the face of situations which I think most of our pastors here would crumble. <laughs> You know, some of the issues they have to face um, pastorally are just unbelievable. And I'll, I'll, I'm happy to talk about those afterwards. So how might you address that? Just go back there. How might you be the hands and feet of Christ to the Mary Magdalene's, first of all of St. Andrew's, in your Jerusalem, before we go to Judea, Samaria, and the end of the earth, how might you better be well, look at the way Jesus related to people. He started with them where they were and he asked them what their need was and he met that need where they were. So look at these verses. Jesus says to his disciples, as you go, proclaim this message. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Heal the sick, raise the dead, cleanse those who have leprosy, drive out demons... Now, some of those gifts we may have now, some of them we may not, but those were the gifts that were needed at that point when Jesus was there with the disciples. But he says, why? He says, freely you have received, so freely give. And that's the key bit there. 
We have all met with Christ at a certain point. If we've met with Christ, we have received. We are duty-bound in response to go and freely give, starting in your Jerusalem, in your Judea, Samaria, to the end of the earth, wherever God is calling you. And finally here, Luke 10. After this, the Lord appointed 72 others and sent them out two by two ahead of him. We could run up, we could gloss over that. Jesus is going, he has in mind doing his mission in this place, this place, this place, this place. And he calls us to go to those places ahead of him. We're his hands and feet, we're his forerunners. It's actually him who's going to do the work, but he wants us going there ahead of him to every town and place where he was about to go. And that still applies to us now, whether it's Malawi, whether it's St. Andrews. And then the famous verse, he tells them, the harvest is plentiful, but the workers are few. Two actions, ask. In other words, pray. And that sounds like what you've been doing over this last week. Pray for the Lord of the harvest to send out workers into the harvest field. Because Jesus wants them going out ahead of him. He's got in mind places to go, things to do, changes to make, transformations in society to build his kingdom in this world as well as in the next. So one, ask the Lord of the harvest. And then number two, go. Actually do something. Not just have the prayer meeting, but then go. But it may not be easy. Look, I'm sending you like lambs among wolves. So he's not promising an easy ride when we do this obedience. It may actually be tricky. It may be costly. It may be painful. But that's his model. We're sent to go ahead of him to the places he has planned to go. Will you be the hands and the feet? If you have questions, you can ask me afterwards. I'll be downstairs over the coffee time, whether it's about our ministry here or any of the other things uh, that we've been doing. Uh, Very happy to share, as you can imagine. Um, But I hope that challenges you to think a little about your life here, mission here, gives you a little bit of an introduction to what we're doing and how important it is to see mission centered around the model that Jesus himself followed, which is take people where they're at and meet them. But don't just come to them, but use them. Use them then as part of his mission team to build his kingdom.